0: You think because a lot of small business owners don't even know about mobile responsive themes, for example, they don't have time to figure all this stuff out.
1: Absolutely. They have have
0: to go hire an agency to be in touch with all this and they can't all afford agencies.
1: Exactly, exactly. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur on Fire. You're listening to my friend, Ash Roy. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet to access previous episodes and use productivity tips. Go to com. Now,
0: here's your host, Ash Roy. So, today's guest uses the title Wizard of Moz and is the founder and former CEO of moz.com. He's co-authored a book called The Art of SEO and is addicted to all things content, search, and social on the web. Over the last decade, he's spoken at Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and co-founded inbound.org with Dharmesh Shah. He's given presentations to the UN, Stanford University, NPR, and Y Combinator. When he's not building businesses and giving awesome presentations, he travels the world with his wife, Geraldine, which she writes about in a superbly enjoyable travel blog. It's my absolute honor and pleasure to welcome Rand Fishkin, the founder of Moz.com. Welcome, Rand.
1: Thanks for having me, Ash.
0: It's great to have you. It really is. Rand, one of the things that really inspired me to have you on my show amongst many was a quote on kindness that you mentioned in an interview with John Lee Dumas. you quoted Abraham Joshua Heschel, where he said, when I was young, I admired clever people. And when I grew older, I admired kind people. And you talked about kindness as a competitive advantage. Before we kick into the formal interview, I'd love to hear a bit more about that quote. And I'm sure the listeners would love to hear more about it too.
1: I think that the reason that so many of us are where we are in the world, especially those of us who've, who've had some modicum of success, is because people helped us, because people showed us kindness, were giving, were generous of of their time, of their information and knowledge, of resources, of connections and introductions. And I think that all of us who have had success and continue to have success, owe that debt forward and and. It's up to us to pay it forward, to hopefully be generous to new generations of folks who are seeking to build their own livelihoods or accomplish their own goals in life, whatever those goals may be, financial or otherwise. And I, I have found tremendously more value, more life satisfaction, and more happiness from helping people than I have from making money.
0: That's wonderful.
1: I hope that's true of other folks, and I suspect if you A-B test it yourself, you will notice that you get much more enjoyment out of a day when you provided real help to people than a day where you made a little more money.
0: I couldn't agree more. One of my favorite bloggers is Leo Babauta, and he writes a lot about mindfulness, and he talks quite a bit about it. And I absolutely agree that the attitude and the magnanimity that you bring to a situation not only transforms the situation, but transforms how you experience it. I think the world can always do with more magnanimity and positivity. Maybe I'm a bit idealistic, but I believe that people are more important than profits in a business because ultimately they are what drive profit. Rand, could you talk us through how SEO and content marketing has evolved over the years and why it's played such an important role in business success?
1: Sure, yeah. So SEO has always had content and content marketing because you simply cannot do SEO without content, right? It's at the base of the SEO pyramid. If you don't have content, there's nothing there to rank. There's nothing to optimize, point links to, you know, do keyword research and targeting for. So content's always been a part of of SEO. That said, SEO has not always been a part of content marketing. Many content marketing practitioners out there today who don't make SEO a cornerstone or a big part of how they invest in content. In my opinion, that's sacrificing a lot of potential traffic that you could have as a content marketer. And I think you're doing a disservice to your potential readers and audience because so many people seek out content through search as a channel. And if you don't do SEO, your chances of outperforming your competition in search engines are, well, it's not great. Let's put it that way. To your second question around You know, how uh, content has evolved over the years, why it's become so important to businesses. I think the answer to that is because the web has become so content consumption centric. You know, a huge part of what we use social networks for, what we use search engines for, uh, what we do on the web when we are not. You know, doing our work, or even when we are doing our work, is content consumption. We use it for research. We use it for inspiration. We use it to see what other people have done. We use it for competitive insight. We use it to learn more about our jobs and what we should be doing. Uh, we use it to goof off and relax. We use it to uh, find people and entities and ideas with which we identify and then can amplify to our social groups. So content has just become a huge part of daily life for internet users. And as internet users have grown to encompass you know, billions of people around the world, content has become incredibly powerful. And the right content, the right content that reaches the right people is more powerful than it's ever been.
0: Now, you made a really important point, Rand, about right content, because... In today's information overload environment, so much of the right content is getting ignored or getting missed. So how do you get your content not only to be the right content, but to get noticed in so much noise?
1: Yeah, I think those are actually two distinct practices that that happen to have a lot of overlap uh, between them. And so I think the content targeting where you essentially say, what does my audience want? I really like asking the question Who would amplify this content and why? So not just people who would consume it and people who would find it valuable, but people who would find it so valuable that they would actually amplify it to their networks or influencers who would say, this is worth sharing. Great point. And these are the emotional reasons or the motivations that I have for wanting to share. And I think if you can answer that, you've got a great piece of content from the perspective of audience targeting, and a great piece of content from an amplification potential perspective.
0: And that is what Google is looking for as well. Google looks for shareability, don't they?
1: They do. The Google checklist is even longer, Yeah. right? So like, you know, SEO is this thing where you, you sort of are optimizing towards all these human algorithms and inputs, but then you're also optimizing towards some sort of machine or algorithmic inputs and outputs that are equally important. For Google, right? So you can produce a phenomenal piece of content, you know, all about the best places to travel in Australia. But if you call it Go in Oz, which yeah. might be that's a great title for you and me potentially, <laughs> Google is not going to figure it out, right? It's just, it, it's a little too removed even from their advanced, sophisticated topic modeling algorithms. And all the people who link to it and who share it are going to use that title. And Google's going to rank something that's done a better job of saying it's about the best places to visit or the must-see places to visit in Australia. So there's some keyword targeting and research to do there. There's all sorts of technical things on a checklist that you need to take care of for SEO. SEO is not a create great content and go home. Neither is content marketing, by the way, in my opinion, but Google especially is not.
0: Okay. Can you give us a bit of, a, of your view on how SEO has evolved? So we started off with backlinks, and then you had all the, you know, backlink spamming schemes and whatever, and buying of links. And things have changed over the years, but I'd love to hear your perspective because you know so much about it. How do you see SEOs having evolved, and where do you see it heading? If you extrapolated that trajectory, where do you see it going in the coming years?
1: Yeah, so I think, well, the funny part is SEOs almost done a 360. So very early days of SEO, you know, it was all about keywords, right? And it was all about on-page content. So you, you kind of just optimize the pages and the pages that were the most optimized to the search engines, given algorithms about what was on the page itself. Those are the ones that perform best. Google came on the scene and to be fair, they weren't the first ones or the only ones, but they were the ones who did the link-based algorithms best. PageRank is kind of what they're known for most, and and link-based algorithms were very, very strong for a long period of time. In fact, they're they're still strong today. However, that being said, to your point, people manipulated on-page stuff. They manipulated keyword use. They manipulated links. And so search engines have become much more sophisticated around both of those. I think we're also seeing some new uh, signals on the rise in the SEO world, and those are things like Uh, user and usage data. We're also seeing some uh, site quality types of data. So not just uh, engines looking at individual pages, but engines looking at domains and actually brands and creating associations between a brand and a domain and a set of keywords or a set of uh, topics and ideas. And They're looking at, you know, things around user happiness with results, whether people bounce back from the search results, whether people uh, solve their query on your website or whether they have to go back to the search engine and keep looking for other related things because you didn't answer their query in its entirety. And then search engines are also evolving to look at other kinds of input so that they're probably using some forms of quick stream data and usage data, which can give them access to uh, social media And, you know, all of these other forms of input. So there's a, you know, a a wide, wide range of SEO kinds of things that have become much broader over the years. And I think, you know, just like what happened historically, we're going to see spam and manipulation, and then we're going to see Google getting better at all that stuff. And, you know, SEOs having to advance more.
0: I'm curious to know what your views are on retargeting and how that might disrupt this, because we retargeting for the listeners is or the viewers is where someone targets a pixel on a particular site and uses that as a way to track that particular viewer and then goes and markets remarkets to them when they're on other sites so that's presumably going to disrupt google's current ways of evaluating a, a, site's, a site's usability is that right
1: no i i don't necessarily think so i think retargeting and remarketing are Uh, powerful advertising options and they're great ways to reach out to people who've hopefully had a good experience with your website and you you can re-engage folks that way. But I don't think it really messes with Google's algorithms very much. I think what is cool about retargeting potentially from an SEO perspective is that if you have someone come to your site And then they leave you know in the past there wasn't a whole lot of ways to get in front of those people again to to reintroduce your brand to them to um you know get them to come back now there are and because of that for the folks who do a great job with retargeting with remarketing getting people back to their websites i think they have another opportunity to earn a link or a share or a kind of amplification or earn that person's uh trust and loyalty Earn that person's um, biasing, you know. Maybe they'll bookmark your site, maybe they'll come back directly to you. Maybe next time they search Google, they'll click on your website instead of somebody else's because they had a good experience with you.
0: Right.
1: And remember Google's personalization algorithms, which look at your history, like where have you visited on the web? What did you search for previously? What domains have you visited, all that kind of stuff. That can actually mean that you rank a little bit higher because that searcher has been personalized to have Google bias to your domain appearing in the search results. So all that kind of stuff is pretty cool.
0: Wow. Okay. That's, I didn't realize that Google takes it to that level and even looks at your personal history of browsing and, and searching.
1: So long as you're signed into your Google account, they're going to look at uh, domains and pages that you visited previously. And then when you, you know, As you start typing in Google Chrome, if you use Chrome, Mm -hmm. for example, right? And you start typing in the URL bar, either to search or to uh, directly visit, you'll notice that the URLs that come up are the ones you visited previously, right? right? So Google's suggesting those to you again, because they think, hey, you might want to go back there. That also goes into search data, right? And can be used to personalize your search results. So they might show you a a website or a, a URL that you visit, a lot or have visited recently uh, higher up in search results if you're searching for something.
0: Okay. So if you were looking through Google's crystal ball, or if you imagine Google's crystal ball, where do you see Google seeing the the future of search?
1: A few things. One, they've sort of switched gears and are now taking user experience and user interface cues from mobile and applying those to desktop. So Google's kind of going to a mobile first strategy, I think because they recognize that mobile is where the next, you know, billion, two billion people are going to come online primarily and mobile has overtaken desktop in terms of time spent online and time spent with the web. I think this year we're going to see that there are more mobile searches sometime this year than there are desktop searches. And the interesting, the really interesting thing about that is, you know, a lot of folks, a lot of marketers and and web analysts and predictors are like, desktop is shrinking and desktop is going down. And that's not true. Okay. Mobile is not eating into desktop time. So where
0: is it growing from then?
1: Free time. Everything else that you were doing in your life, you're now doing with your mobile device, right? right? You're right, right? You haven't stopped working, less. Like you aren't on your laptop or your desktop any less. Because
0: now we're we're consuming mobile information while we're going to bed, while we're, you know, watching the iPad just before going to sleep, listening. Oh, you're absolutely right. I didn't even think about that.
1: Yeah. And you can see this. You can see it in the stats, right? So um, Mary Meeker's state of the internet report that she puts together for KPCB every year looked at that usage and desktop usage has basically gone flat, but mobile usage keeps going up.
0: That is so interesting. So it's not cannibalizing desktop. Mobile is not cannibalizing desktop. Mobile is just growing independently of desktop. That's right. Very interesting. And I actually just saw an article from Eric... Eng. Is that how you pronounce it? Eric Eng? Yeah, um, Eric Engie. Yeah. Engie. I subscribed to his list and he wrote about mobile get I'm actually hoping to have him on the show soon. And it, it's very interesting. The most recent algorithm update, I believe, that Google has had it tends to move you down in the rankings on mobile devices if your site is not mobile responsive, which a lot of business owners don't appear to know about yet, which I'm surprised.
1: Unfortunately, I think this is one of those things where, well, so first off, and Eric will tell you when he's on the show, but, but mobile get is about the worst name you could possibly think of for (laughs) this update, because we're pretty sure if Google hadn't told us they were making the update, uh, no one would have noticed that it happened. It was a very small, very incremental and very actually slow moving over the course of three or four weeks update. And in fact, even Google themselves came out and said, yeah, the algorithm didn't really, it wasn't as noticeable as we thought it was going to be. It didn't affect that many queries all that kind of stuff, which is fine. But the thing that frustrates me tremendously about the mobile update and about Google rewarding sites that can do responsive and adaptive design better for mobile devices is I think it really biases to larger brands, more sophisticated websites, and more sophisticated sort of you know web marketers and web entrepreneurs. And it really punishes small and medium websites, small business owners, very small local businesses, who have enough trouble just maintaining a website you know, that kind of works, and now they're not going to rank as well in mobile devices, I think that's very frustrating, very tough.
0: Do you think because a lot of small business owners don't even know about mobile responsive themes, for example, they don't have time to figure all this stuff out?
1: A- absolutely. And
0: they have to go hire an agency to be in touch with all this, and they can't all afford agencies.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Right. So they're the people with the fewest resources to be able to do this. They also have the least knowledge. And it's not like you know Google didn't call all these businesses and say like, "Hey, you know, local ice cream shop. Guess what? You need to take care of this." Right. They they put it on the Google blog, which web marketers pay a lot of attention to, and small ice cream shop owners do not pay a lot of attention to.
0: Yes, yes. Actually, I've got another question about, I guess, contentious issue that came around when Matt Cutts announced guest blogging was dead and then he later retracted that. I'd love to hear your take on it. I mean, I don't think guest blogging is dead and I think Matt Cutts said it in so many words. But initially, I think when he said it, he was just frustrated because there were so many people just trying to, just create sort of spammy guest blogs. And he said, if you write good quality content, it is still very much a valid traffic growth strategy. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, so actually, I sort of like that post from Matt because to me, many of the times when he has written publicly or made public appearances and spoken, you almost feel like he's just a Google public relations robot. (laughs) Right. Um, And so it was really nice. It was comforting to me to see like, Hey, no. Here's this human being who just is gonna say, very honestly human. trying to do a good job, and he's frustrated, and he's feeling overwhelmed. He's feeling like tons of people are just spamming the crap out of this guest blogging thing, and and I think he's right. I think like nine out of ten guest blogs at the time that he wrote that post were manipulative. They were designed to get people anchor text. They were they were not intended to. Hey, I really like uh, this blog. And I want to contribute something valuable because if that audience likes me, they'll come over to my site and check me out. That's not why people were guest blogging or that's not why many, many people were guest blogging. And I think that frustrated the crap out of him. So I like seeing that. I love that passion. Like I love that humanity from Matt. I'd be happy to see more of it. I think maybe now that he's sort of leaving on absence from Google, maybe we will see more of it.
0: Well, I, th- I think he got a lot of um, negative publicity from that, and it was it was sort of sad to see him have to come back and retract it. But it was good that he did, though, because I think it clarified things. And
1: okay, I think he did exactly like he's just like the rest of us, right? He gets frustrated by something, oh, yeah. he sees it being abused, he lashes out, and then he goes, "You know what? Actually, these critics make valid points. I'm going to go refine my viewpoint,"
0: which was very good of
1: him. Yeah, I think I think the the right message was guest blogging purely for seo links is dead right and that is that's a great message i hope it dies because i hated reading crappy guest blog posts that were just trying to get anchor text
0: totally totally by the way moz.com has some fantastic posts on it so to the listeners if you haven't checked it out you must if you want to learn about seo if you want to learn about content marketing that's a great place to go fantastic post so thank you for that matt
1: Thanks, Nash. I
0: appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you, Rand. I just called you, Matt.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's fine. He contributes
0: too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, Rand, can you talk a bit about where you see SEO and content, the role they would be playing in businesses going forward? Something you've already hinted at was with the most recent update, Google is sort of inadvertently favoring the larger businesses more, but what can small and medium businesses do to tackle this and how can they use SEO to their advantage?
1: Sure. I think one of the things that's still very advantageous for smaller businesses is what I call the long tail of keyword demand, right? So this is, you know, every day, tens of thousands of people are looking for, you know, best vacations in Australia, but only a few hundred people every month are looking for best beach vacations for families in, you know, Sydney. I know what you mean. Right? So you you get longer and longer into that tail and then smaller and smaller businesses can be more and more focused on serving exactly that searcher intent. And I think that's one of the things that you can really take advantage of as a small business, right? There's much less competition. If it's hyper relevant to your business, you're going to be getting much more relevant traffic for it. If you can produce phenomenal content around that. And, you know, I'm not a fan of like the advice, make great content or just produce phenomenal content. Like I I think that has to be qualified with what do you mean by phenomenal content? And for me, those things are serves the user's intent the searcher's conscious and unconscious intent okay. like what i know that i want and what i don't know that i want but once i get there i'll be like oh my gosh i'm so glad you have that
0: that's such a good point now how do you preempt that how do you as a content creator figure out the unconscious part that is such a great point
1: i think uh two things can really help one having great empathy for your visitors right so putting yourself in the searcher's mindset and going hey once i uh I know that what they're going to want to see is lots of pictures. They're going to want to see video. They'll want to see some descriptions. But then, you know what they probably would love is they'd love to see a comparison of like, hey, there's four resorts that are uh, beach resorts that are family friendly in Sydney. I'm not just going to promote mine. I'm going to promote all four of them. And I'm going to let you choose, right? And here's the strengths of my particular one, but I'm not going to be biased. I'm going to promote them all. Wow. Now you're getting to unconscious bias. Now you're getting to like, no one expects to go to a resort's website and see their three closest competitors also promoted. That's insane. And it's also probably insanely valuable. And it's also probably a phenomenal way to stand out. And it's also probably a great way to get press and public relations. And it's probably also a way to get sharers and amplifiers to go, I'd much rather promote this content than only the content that the one resort promoting themselves does. Right. So God. I think finding that empathy is great. And then the other thing you can do is survey. Mm-hmm. Right. So like we've done this at Moz where we ask 10 people like, Hey, you've just performed a search for uh, best grilled steak. What are the four things that you most want to find on the page that you click on? What would you be really disappointed with if you didn't see this information when you clicked and people will be like, well, Kind of steak. I'd want to know grilling time. I'd want to know how to check the temperature and the doneness. I'd want to know uh, where I should buy it. I, right, like they, they'll give you that list. Then you can take that list and aggregate it and go. Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of things I didn't think of.
0: So, a great tool to do this. Then is to ask yourself when you're creating the content, what would the reader want to know that is not obvious? What's the next step? What's the next level? Or maybe what information isn't totally obvious? but would be useful to them.
1: Sure. And then I think it also goes to not just conscious and unconscious need but, and desire, but also what will make this something that people will want to amplify, right? So like who wants to share this and why will they want to share it? And if you can have a great answer to that, which, you know, that can include a very, very unique format. Or, you know, some sort of stunning presentation or, you know, it includes the data analysis that's just super sexy to want to share. Or it's very interactive, right? I put in like some particular information about me and then it customizes the interface or creates a calculator for me or, you know, whatever it is.
0: Something I've noticed on the Moz blog is there's a lot of detailed information with screenshots and Neil Patel does this very well. And Tim Ferriss does a lot of long-form content as well. He's a big believer in long-form, and it seems to me like that long-form content is more authoritative for the very reason that you're talking about. It's probably addressing not just the superficial needs that a searcher is looking for, but even the next level of information that they're looking for.
1: Yeah, I think what you have to be careful with is applying long-form content when short-form content presented well would do a better job. And I I do see this a lot too, right? Where people create these exhaustive, huge guides. And you know, all I really needed were like these five answers well presented in a beautiful format. Uh, So I think you can swing the pendulum too far either way.
0: So you need to then ask yourself when you're creating the content, not just what's the next level of information I can provide to the searcher, but can this be presented more concisely?
1: Yeah, and what will provide the most pleasurable, share-worthy experience for that searcher. And, and don't forget, right, the, the thing about searchers that's often different from a social media reader or like a blog subscriber, that kind of thing, is that they are looking for precisely that information at precisely that moment. Okay, uh, And that's often different from sort of like a, hey, I'm browsing Reddit or I'm browsing Hacker News or I'm checking out my Feedly subscriptions or, oh, this interesting article was just tweeted by someone. That's a very different sort of browse mechanism Mm -hmm. versus I need to know how to grill the best steak, or I need to know where to go on vacation, or I need to know where I can find a carburetor for a 1997, you know, Nissan Altima, like right now.
0: Right. Okay. What are the most common challenges you've noticed with people getting started with implementing SEO? What's worked best in terms of overcoming those challenges?
1: Yeah. So biggest challenges that I've seen for folks just starting out with SEO, getting that basic understanding of how search engines work and what elements you need to include in a website and what to be careful of and avoid. So I think a lot of times people hear, okay, uh, keywords and links, uh, that'll get me rankings. And so what do they do? They go create 50 pages on their site, all targeting the same keywords or worse, They go create 50 websites, all with the keywords in the domain name, all pointing to one particular site and are like, great, now I've got 50 links from 50 relevant websites. like, (laughs) no, Google is not stupid. They employ thousands of the smartest scientists and engineers the world has ever produced. They're getting smarter every year. Their infrastructure and hardware is unbelievable. Their software equally so. If you think you can manipulate and game them, using simple tactics that you thought up the first time you read about a ranking factor in SEO, <laughs> you are crazy. <laughs> um, just stop that, right? Like it, SEO is not an easy road to success. Once you understand like that one weird trick to ranking high in search yeah. engines. Yeah.
0: So the key is play it straight, play the long game and do what makes sense as a human being. Don't try and play the system.
1: Yeah, and, and look, I think another challenge is even if you do play it straight, you play it white hat, you, you follow what you think of the right system, remember that there is a complex, convoluted, logical, ultimately logical, but but lengthy string of, of items that are important to ranking well in Google, right? And those are things, you know, that laundry list is incredibly long, but it can include things around Google not wanting to rank other people's search results in their search results, um, having particular requirements around thin content, having particular protocols for when content is duplicate. So, you know, someone else licensed your article and put it on their website, and now they're outranking you and you're frustrated about it because you didn't know about the cross-domain rel canonical tag that you could have added to that content in the, you know, uh, agreement that you made with letting them put that content on their site. And so, oh, no, now they're outranking you for it and you're frustrated. And, you you know, the rabbit hole of SEO goes very deep. It's logical. It makes sense. There's reasons why it all exists, but it's not immediately obvious. And so I think, you know, it pays to do some research, to, you know, read something like the beginner's guide to SEO, to ask some smart SEO questions when you are encountering a particular kind of content or a particular kind of optimization that you want to do on your site um and not to let yourself get either too black hat manipulative or too much in the camp of well I'll just create great content and Google will do the rest neither of those perspectives are correct
0: right Okay. So onto the actions that a listener can take. I think I can summarize some of them already. One of them is think about what your searcher is looking for and try and provide them with the next level of information to try and make your content more valuable. Try and create content that is likely to be shared that is so useful to them that they will want to share it. Play the long game. Don't try and game the system. Don't just focus on creating good quality content or trying to create super smart tricks that that will move you forward in SEO but do a balance of both uh, is there anything i've missed
1: yeah one of the things so one of the things that i i really think about around amplification is not just create something that people will want to share but before you ever create something have in mind know for certain who will be those people who will share it ah. and why they will share it if you know in advance if i if i know hey you know what ash and i did this interview We talked about um, kindness and generosity in entrepreneurship. I'm writing a blog post about kindness in entrepreneurship. I bet if I share it with Ash, he'll share it. I'm going to reach out to him. Now now I'm not just going, oh, yeah, I bet there's people who would amplify this. I'm actually knowing who those people are.
0: Right, right.
1: Having a specific group. And if you can name 10 people who you know are going to share the piece – Great. Now you've really done something impressive.
0: This is fantastic, Rand. That's just if you just take that one action out of this interview, that's gonna really be powerful. Just think of specific people. I I need to do that more myself. So I'm gonna start doing that.
1: Absolutely. The other thing I would say is when it comes to keywords, like be intelligent about the keyword choices that you make. Remember that Google is not omniscient yet. They can't understand every nuance of language. Uh, particularly outside of English, but even in the English language, they're not great about knowing that, you know, when you say, you know, best spots in Oz, that you mean, oh, these are the best vacation resorts in Australia, right? So you need to be specific for them. You need to be obvious for them. Uh, And then Google cares quite a bit about the other terms and phrases that you use on a page. So they're very sophisticated when it comes to topic modeling and you want to be able to figure out, hey, if I'm going to write about best vacations in Australia, I should probably include the names of cities. I should probably include the names of regions. I should probably include words like beach, pool, kids, you know, driving time, how to get there, right? All of these terms and phrases that Google has almost certainly topically associated with this keyword phrase. Uh, And if you don't do that, you're probably going to be outranked by somebody who does a better job with it, right? Great. So uh, all those kinds of things.
0: Awesome. Last question. What books have had the biggest impact on you and why?
1: One of the ones early on in my career, I read Jim Collins' books, uh, Good to Great and Built to Last, which I think for many entrepreneurs were very eye-opening, and they certainly were for me as well. There was a book that a friend of mine uh, shared with me many years ago that I've loved forever called The Billionaire Who Wasn't. Okay, uh, It's all about um, Chuck Feeney, the founder of Duty Free Shops. Did you, I didn't even actually know that Duty Free Shops were a brand. I thought that just meant a shop where you could shop duty free. But no, it's a brand. The founder of that, his story is fascinating. I loved it. It actually goes back to a lot of that like kindness and altruism and entrepreneurship. And let's see, I really liked uh, Robert Cialdini's uh, psychology, uh, sorry, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. That was a great book.
0: Almost all my guests have suggested that one as well.
1: Yeah, right. It's just, it's timeless. I
0: did good to great when I did my MBA and I love that book. How does a person get in touch with you? Do I just head over to moz.com?
1: Yeah, so you can go to moz.com. You're welcome to tweet at me. I'm at randfish, uh, And you can also email me, rand at moz.com.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Rand. It's been an absolute pleasure. My
1: pleasure, Ash. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today?